0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Lake Capitalism by Martine Arboleda. Planetary Mine rethinks the politics and territoriality of resource extraction, especially as the mining industry becomes reorganized in the form of logistical networks and East Asian economies emerge as the new pivot of the capitalist world system. Through an exploration of the ways in which mines in the Atacama Desert of Chile have become intermingled with an expanding constellation of megacities, ports, banks, and factories across East Asia, this book rethinks uneven geographical development in the era of supply chain capitalism. Arguing that extraction entails much more than the mere spatiality of mine shafts and pits, Planetary Mine points towards the expanding webs of infrastructure, of labor, of finance, and of struggle that drive resource-based industries in the 21st century. Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism, by Martin Arboleda. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm once again broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island, though in a different studio because, of course, COVID-related complications. The organizing we do and the decisions we make now will in hindsight be incredibly important The test of a movement is precisely how we respond to difficult moments and to crises. And as I've said in recent days, this is particularly true for a movement like ours, which has accomplished so much in recent years, building a left politics in the United States that would have been incomprehensible just five years ago. We have a lot of work to do, but the good news is that that is precisely the work that we are doing. We've got to double down on our organizing work, very much including the important work of helping socialists win down-ballot races. The presidency is big and important, of course, but everything else matters too, immensely. And so this week I'm highlighting a few more down-ballot races so that you can learn about them, support them, and also launch similar campaigns wherever you live. We are entering a crisis that presents both grave dangers and huge opportunities. Anyhow, today we've got Samalise Lopez, New York City DSA's candidate for the U.S. House seat in the Bronx's 15th district. And then after that, three New York City DSA candidates for the state legislature, Jabari Brisport, Marcella Mataines, and Farah Souffrant Forrest. Later this week, I'll post my interview with Nikhil Saval and Rick Krajewski, two state legislative candidates backed by Reclaim Philly in Pennsylvania. I will also be posting an interview on the politics of coronavirus with Mike Davis. Stay tuned. During Sunday's debate, Joe Biden said, Look, this is a national crisis. I don't want to get this into a back and forth in terms of our politics here. Beware. This insistence that something so serious is beyond politics because of its seriousness is always an attempt to protect and normalize the political and economic status quo. Our politics and our entire political economic order are failing us. They are killing a growing number of people and driving far more onto the brink of destitution. Precisely what we need is the opposite of what Biden calls for. We must ensure that this crisis is explicitly and thoroughly politicized so that we save lives and livelihoods now and ensure that a better world emerges later instead of an even worse one. Biden also repeatedly called the coronavirus crisis a war. What the war framing does, of course, particularly in a country that has been in permanent war for nearly two decades, is to tell the American people and the people of the world to shut up and let their leaders handle things, and to hold those leaders blameless. We cannot let that happen. The politics and policies of Bernie Sanders have never seemed more reasonable, and those of Biden have never seemed more dangerous. That includes, of course, signature Bernie policies like Medicare for all and a jobs guarantee. And it also highlights the urgent need for a homes guarantee. People's Action has a really important homes guarantee organizing campaign, and it's made very clear what we should make of this crisis in terms of what sort of demands we're making around housing. The federal government, they say, must do the following provide $2,000 cash assistance for everybody, a national eviction and foreclosure moratorium, a ban on utility shutoffs, and the restoration of services that have already been shut off, homes for people experiencing homelessness, support for public housing residents, and, finally, a just transition post-pandemic. I want to read this tweet from the People's Action Homes Guarantee campaign lead and Kansas City Tenants Director Tara Raguvier. Quote, COVID-19 demonstrates more clearly than ever that we cannot continue treating housing as a commodity. It's killing us. We must establish housing as a public good. Everyone can and must have a safe, accessible, sustainable, truly and permanently affordable home, a home's guarantee. And housing, it turns out, is also the top priority for each of these New York City DSA candidates. All of these interviews were conducted before coronavirus upended everything, but their demands for housing justice that we discussed are more relevant than ever. Before we get started, right now we need a lot of smart analysis. Right now, a lot of you also have a bit more time than usual on your hands. And so, we will be upping content production here at The Dig, adding regular short-form interviews on the present situation alongside our normal fare of long conversations about books. If you appreciate what we are doing, please consider joining your fellow Dig listeners in making a contribution at patreon.com. Com we will also mail you, through USPS, which is still up and running, a left-wing book or books in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. I know some of you have a bit more time to read. Anyhow, please take a moment and contribute what you can now at patreon.com slash the dig that's P A T R E O N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Samalise Lopez, who I interviewed from my regular studio in Providence. Samalise was born in Puerto Rico and raised in the South Bronx by a Dominican mother, growing up in the New York City family shelter system. Today, she is an organizer running for Congress in the Bronx, in New York's 15th District. Samalice Lopez, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You are running for a house seat in the 15th district, the poorest congressional district in the country. Tell me about the district, the conditions that people are living and working in, and how you think a socialist candidate, you in particular, can speak to that reality and win.
1: Sure. I guess uh, if I can start with my personal story. Please. So I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. I was born in Bayamon, Puerto Rico. My mother's from the Dominican Republic, and she divorced my dad around the time that I was two. And she came to this country to make it. She worked in sweatshops to make ends meet 12, 13 hours a day. And sometimes there wasn't enough money for a babysitter. And she would pick me up from elementary school, and I would do my homework at the sweatshop and she also happened to end up in a bad situation with my stepdad and she ended up becoming a domestic violence survivor and me seeing all these issues growing up our experiences growing up in the homeless shelter system my brother being born there exposed me to a lot of issues in you know the community it exposed me to income inequality violence poverty worker exploitation So what I keep saying on the campaign trail is that my experiences are not unique in the city and specifically this congressional district. There's a lot of people that still experience that. So I think because of my personal experiences, I was drawn to social justice. I was drawn to fight for the underdog. I had this sense of indignation. As I was growing up, watching these abuses unfold. And my mom ended up taking food stamps. And sometimes I would see the way that the caseworkers would treat us. And I was like, why are you treating my mom like that? She's a hard worker. I've seen her work all her life. And now that she needs assistance, you're kicking her when she's down. So since I was like eight years old, seven years old, I've been fighting. And I think socialism and democratic socialism, I think it's about that. It's about rectifying the imbalance that exists between the classes, between the 1% and the 99%. And it's about making sure that people that have suffered, that are left out of the American dream, get access to that. And that's what socialism is about for me. It's about making sure that we have organizers in places of leadership that we empower the people in the community to make the decisions for their lives, that we invest in collective organizing, that we invest in our collective goods and spaces, our libraries, our parks, our affordable housing stock, our health care, our child care, things that will make it easier for us to survive and thrive in the community. And I can tell you that in the district that I Grew up in in the Bronx because when we left the shelter system, we ended up getting a Section 8 voucher and we ended up getting an apartment in the Bronx and we started fresh. A lot of people are experiencing the same issues that I grew up experiencing. They're experiencing homelessness, ICE terrorism. They're experiencing a lack of health care, opioid crisis, high asthma rates and respiratory illnesses because of the way that our highways have cut up the neighborhood and trucks that release their diesel fuel emissions into the community have polluted our air and the lungs of our children. So we definitely need to fight for things like a Green New Deal for the South Bronx with the guidance of the existing frontline communities that have been on the ground fighting that fight. And uh, that's basically, you know, all of the issues that the communities are struggling with. The Bronx is a re- revolutionary, resilient borough And we've been defined by movements such as the Young Lords, the Black Panthers. So it makes sense for the revolution to keep continuing here in the Bronx. And I'm really grateful that the New York City Democratic Socialists of America chapter has taken a leap of faith in our campaign because it's a great partnership. So one of the things that I pitched to them is... There's no county in the entire country that embodies the mission and the values of the Democratic Socialists of America than the South Bronx. And I'm really grateful that I have their support.
0: There were, there were more ballots cast for Obama and Hillary Clinton in your district than in any other in the country in recent elections. Your district, in other words, is really solidly Democratic in terms of how it votes,
1: Definitely. I think it's the most Democratic county in the entire country, but very heavily dominated by machine politics.
0: Right. Which brings me to my question because, as we've seen nationally, many Democratic voters have followed the establishment to consolidate behind Joe Biden. So, my question is how do you see the left in general, but but in your race in particular, making the case that vote blue no matter who, this idea that all we need to do is defeat Donald Trump just isn't? good enough, but it, but that in fact, it's just those sorts of politics that help Trump get elected in the first place. How do you make that case?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that that's what primaries are about. It's a spirited debate where we talk about who we want to represent the Democratic Party. So in the door knocking that I've been doing for the past few months in the campaign, along with uh, my volunteers, Bernie Sanders resonates. They consider Bernie Sanders to be the transformative working class champion, organizer in chief that we need to have in the White House. So I haven't heard a lot about Biden. I mean, before Elizabeth Warren dropped out, I heard a little bit about her. But I've been hearing mostly about Bernie Sanders's vision, the vision around housing, environmental justice, his consistency over the past 40 years of his uh, record in public service, the things that he's fought for, the things that he stood up for when it wasn't politically convenient for him to fight for those things. So I think that his message is resonating. And in 2016, that was 2016. It was a different conversation. But now in the four years after uh, the election in 2016, now we're seeing that a lot of people are getting to know Bernie and a lot of black and brown people that live in the Bronx are really inspired by his movement. And they feel like he's the movement candidate that we deserve to have, you know, represent us in the White House. Sometimes people even tell me, well, the only reason I'm gonna give you my vote is because you're a Bernie Sanders supporter.
0: Right. The, the perceptions get really oversimplified. I mean, the big surge in Latino support for Bernie has sort of ch- challenged that narrative. It's sort of undeniable that Latinos have become core to Bernie's voting base. But amongst black voters, we also see this kind of generalization of the politics, which are complex, have complex origins of older black voters in the South to black voters everywhere when looking at Massachusetts, looking at Nevada. Bernie was right right behind Biden with black voters did 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 well
1: well I think that's what you just answered uh you know your own question (laughs) I think there's a generational divide in the African-American community I think that the young people uh in the African community uh African-American community overwhelmingly support Bernie Sanders As the Latino community um, and a lot of diverse communities, because he represents that change. He's promising to cancel student loan debt. I mean, that's something that is a silent crisis that a lot of people in the community that I hope to represent are struggling with. And a lot of immigrant families struggle with that too, because they look at education as a promise of America and an opportunity to level the playing field and rectify the imbalance that we've been talking about throughout our conversation. So they have fear for their children being burdened by student loan debt. And they see in Bernie Sanders, a champion that's going to eliminate that. And that's going to jumpstart the economy and, you know, make people feel like they can achieve their dreams. So Biden, I can tell you for a fact, does not represent that, at least in the areas that I've been door knocking in the community. And there's definitely a generational uh, divide. But at least in places like the Bronx, I can't speak for other places in the country because I haven't been door knocking out there yet. But in the Bronx, there's definitely that energy, and they love what he's doing around making sure that the places of work are get access so that they can uh, organize more effectively. I know that our undocumented brothers and sisters sometimes get targeted. By ICE, when they start organizing for their wages, the bosses then come in and say, Okay, you're going to organize against me. I'm going to deport you. And they call ICE. And they do that to our undocumented brothers and sisters. And Bernie is fighting for the Whistleblower Act, which is saying, Well, no, you're not going to be penalized or criminalized because you have the courage to organize and speak out against worker exploitation and oppression. And, uh, you know, that's starting to resonate because in places like the Bronx, There's a big immigrant community.
0: And many of those immigrants are working class.
1: Overwhelmingly.
0: Representative Jose Serrano is retiring, and he's held that seat, the one you're after, for a long time. And you you worked in his office while in college, I believe. How do you rate his record, and how do you relate to it on the campaign trail, given that he's become such a fixture in the Bronx
1: So he's actually pretty well-respected and loved by many people in the community. What I really love about him is that he always focused on building a multiracial working-class coalition, and he brought everybody together. He didn't play the politics of division, and he used racial identity politics to divide and conquer. A lot of people in the current establishment in the Bronx and beyond are saying, oh, well, this is a black district now, or this is a Latino district or, you know, X, Y, Z. But the representative that this community deserves is a representative that's going to unite everybody in the community. And it's going to be intentional about reaching out to the most marginalized class, And it's going to be intentional about reaching out to people who haven't been spoken to and haven't had a seat at the table for a long time. So we can't afford to have the politics of division play out in this race. We need a uniter and we need someone who's going to be intentional about making sure that uh, the silent voices have a seat at the table. And that's something that I respect about uh, Jose Serrano. And one of the things that I learned from him when I was in college is his commitment to the environmental justice movement and how he learned from the movement leaders on the ground that were fighting for the Bronx River and to transform Concrete Plant Park, because it used to be a wasteland, the Bronx River, and that was definitely an eyesore. So, you know, what that experience working, you know, for him taught me is the importance of being accountable to a movement. And that's something that I definitely plan to do uh, once I get in there. I think that anybody who's, you know, running for a seat like this has to be responsive to the people on the ground that are making the change. Because in the 70s and the 80s, when the Bronx was burning because of the landlords that were burning their own buildings for profit, it was a community that stayed here. So it's my responsibility, should I get elected, to listen to those voices. To bring the community with me to Washington to honor that movement that came before me, and that's what people like Serrano, um, in his own way, represents. So that's the kind of leadership that we need to continue, and that we need to respect and take it to the next level. And you know, working alongside people like AOC, Ilhan Omar, the Squad in Washington right now that are engaging in the politics of transformation. That is a kind of revolution that we need in this country, in addition to exploring creating more than a two party system right um, I think that's something I would love to you know see in the future, but we need to step away from the politics of a broken transactional political system and embrace a politics of transformation
0: i um I wanted to refer back to something you you just mentioned, which was how people in the the rest of the establishment want to say this is a black district or a Puerto Rican district or whatever. And, and you told Jacobin, quote, instead of using race as a divide and conquer tactic, we need to highlight our diversity and figure out what we have in common, which is poverty, worker exploitation, white supremacy. These are all things that unite us and that we need to be fighting against collectively. How does that divide and conquer play out on the ground in the Bronx, and how do you you speak to to this diversity of of racial and economic injustice in your district, and unite it behind this class struggle agenda that you have?
1: Yeah, definitely, I think the most important issue that people in the district are experiencing is homelessness. It's lack of job opportunity. It's lack of healthcare options, childcare options. So I think that regardless of what you look like and your walk in life, you're experiencing these issues as a community. So sometimes I think that when career politicians from the corporate establishment vein step in to run for these seats, they look at you know race and ethnicity to divide the community for their own political gain. But I think the transformative thing to do is to unite collectively to fight against the common oppressor, which is everything that I mentioned in the Jacobin article, white supremacy, corporate greed, uh, worker exploitation. And I think that people in the community overwhelmingly understand what's at stake and that we need to have a different kind of politics and that we need to make sure that our politics reflects the values in the community and the working class struggles of the community. And right now they understand Mm -hmm. that the Mm -hmm. political establishment is not delivering for that.
0: I recently interviewed three DSA candidates, New York City DSA candidates for the New York State legislature, Marcella Matanes, Farah Soufrat, and Jabari Brisport. And all three of them are laser focused on housing, which makes a lot of sense because how, there's a housing crisis, as you have mentioned, in New York. There's a housing crisis all over this country. Housing has extraordinarily expensive and is a key way that capitalists siphon money out of the pockets of working class people how would you use a seat in the house the u.s house to assist that city and state struggle which has had major advances this huge bill passed last year which isn't the end of the struggle but accomplishes significant tenant protections that didn't Exist prior to the bill being passed. How would you assist that struggle from the US House? And how would you use your seat there also to amplify it nationwide? Because New York's maybe one of the most extreme cases, but it's not, a, it's by no means a unique case.
1: Yeah, definitely. We need to amplify the local efforts here in New York State. Based on my personal experiences with homelessness, it's definitely something that, well, before I decided to jump into this race, I've been devoted to. My professional life has consisted of building housing in the Bronx and in New York City for people in vulnerable situations coming out of the shelter system. So because of my early experiences with the shelter system, I ended up uh, learning how to build housing in graduate school and being part of the creative process of how to do that. But then I learned that there are limits because at the end of the day, it's a profit-making enterprise unfortunately. So I think that we need to target predatory land speculative practices that artificially increase the cost of rent in the community. And we need to fight for a homes guarantee so that we can build 12 million units of social housing over the next decade that includes supportive housing, permanent housing. We need to decommodify housing and fight to take this predatory profit-making element out of the equation. Because in the richest country in the world, there should be no person living in the streets. There should be no child that grew up like I did, that or, bo- or was born in the shelter system like I did, or like my brother was born in the shelter system. You know, I grew up in the shelter system, but there should be no people like that in the richest country in the world. We should be fighting to make sure that people have access to a dignified home that they feel safe so that they can go to school so that they can live their greatest greatness and achieve the American dream. Having a home is really important. I think it's taken for granted by a lot of people, but if you are in the shelter system and sometimes people can't even get access to the shelter system, right? You know, they live on benches or they live in overcrowded conditions. So we also have to expand the definition of what it means to be homeless, because if you're in an overcrowded, situation you're homeless if you're couch surfing you're homeless so we need to expand the definition of homelessness right
0: because people homeless on the street they're the tip of the iceberg and then the other tip of the ice right below are the people in the shelter system which who are not as visible to the public but then below that is everyone else who is paying you know like half their income as rent and could lose their apartment at any time
1: Right. And a lot of people are just a paycheck away from being homeless. And these are hardworking people that are just not getting their due because their wages are not rising to the level that they need to survive. And that's not their fault. That's because we're part of this capitalistic system. Because for capitalism to work, you have to have people on the bottom and you have to have people at the top. So people are struggling to get by and we need to have a radical redistribution of social, economic, political power in this country and wealth that flows from the 99% to the 99% because it's the 99% the workers that create the wealth in this country. And there should be a redistribution of wealth that rewards that. Uh, So that can definitely be seen in the affordable housing crisis that we have. And if I were to get elected to Congress, I would work very closely with inam Omar and all of the co-sponsors of the Homes for All Act that she introduced to make this a reality for people living in America, living on the streets, living in the shelter system. Uh, that's one of the first things I would I would do, you know, co-sponsor, like figure out uh, how we can make that a reality.
0: That's the political function of this whole personal responsibility. Discourses, individualized blame.
1: Well, bootstraps, exactly. And that keeps us down. And the power of socialism, democratic socialism, is making sure that collectively we come together to rectify the imbalance that exists in our society as it is now and collectively organize for the change that we want to see in the world from the ground up. Because when we organize for the change that we deserve and, and that we envision, we can obtain it. And that's a perfect antidote against the individualistic values of capitalism and monopolies and oppression. And, you know, when you focus on love and compassion, these are revolutionary values. When you focus on the collective and not the individual, everybody in the society benefits. So I think that's the paradigm shift that we need to have in this country so that we could achieve our dreams
0: you co-founded a group called bronx progressives after the 2016 primary and and that group went on to endorse aoc in the election that she won against joe crowley tell me about the group what led you to start it and what the group has done over the past four years
1: So yeah, that group started after the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, and our whole mission is to build an independent grassroots political movement in the Bronx, where people of different political faiths can express themselves. And our mission is to educate people about the structure of the Democratic Party, and to identify directly impacted people community activists, people that are already on the ground, so that they can run for local party positions and things like that to essentially transform the Bronx Democratic Party from within. Um, So that's a big thing that the group has done over the past four years. In addition to endorsing grassroots insurgent candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. For us, when we first learned about her, we were so impressed with her ability to communicate, uh, how dynamic she is. And for us, it wasn't a matter of, well, we're going to support the safe choice like everybody right now in the political establishment is doing with Biden. We're going to take a political risk because this is a woman. We need more women. We need more women of color in Congress and all levels of government. And she's talking about the values and the issues that matter to us that we've been fighting for collectively for years. So if we're going to support a candidate, our view is that we need to support the candidate that's going to speak truth to power and empower the community, and use their platform as a way of elevating the working class struggles on the ground unapologetically, and someone who's going to be a partner with the movement and the community that put them there. And that's something that we just saw in AOC, and there was no way that we were not going to support her, because she embodies that political representation that we need to re-envision. And again, this goes back to the theme of, stepping away from this transactional, broken system and embracing the politics of transformation. And that's what AOC is. And not only AOC, but other women of color and other people of color that are coming up in politics now see that. That government is for us, and that collectively, when we organize for the changes that we want, we can transform our society. So that's a big thing that the group has uh, done. In addition to fighting against the independent Democratic Conference, which was eight New York State Senate Democrats that were empowering Republicans to stay in power in Albany uh, in 2018. So we united with the rest of the progressive community in New York City to basically do away with that arrangement and make sure that the Democratic Party is responsive to the working class and the grassroots.
0: And a number of those Democrats who were part of the IDC selling out to, to benefit not only Republicans, but Mayor, um, but Governor Cuomo, a number of them were from the, the Bronx?
1: Right. The key kingmaker was from the Bronx. So we decided it was more efficient to concentrate on the leader of the IDC. And, uh, you know, we organized in the Bronx to basically oust him from power, and it was successful. And now we have a wonderful representative, Alessandra Biagi, and we were able to successfully create the right political conditions for the most progressive tenant rent reform laws that Albany and New York State has seen in a generation. So politics and community activism can work together to create the change that we need in the community. So I don't know if we hadn't... we hadn't created those political conditions for the IDC to be abolished, that we would have had these tenant rent for reform laws that we've seen that have benefited so many people in the community. So that's a great example of how when you create the right political conditions, it can benefit a lot of people in society. It was really the grassroots activists that came together on the ground to fight for housing justice for all. That was 100% activists. And then because that political space were created, it was able to be amplified into electoral power. And the same thing with the Homes Guarantee platform. It was directly impacted people all over the country, formerly homeless, Mm -hmm. people experiencing housing scarcity, living in overcrowded conditions that got together collectively to re-envision a bold housing agenda and reverse the decades of racist housing policy that the United States government enacted by law, when you look at things like redlining in black and brown communities, that was real and that was legal. And the Homes Guarantee platform is a response to that systemic institutionalized racist oppression that people in black black and brown communities have experienced for generations living in this country. Because the Homes Guarantee has a reparations component And it has an environmental justice component, too, and an economic development component, because the goal is with the Homes Guarantee and programs like the Green New Deal, we can identify local people in the community to access those construction jobs that will happen when these ambitious plans are undertaken. And it's really exciting. A lot of people gravitate towards that, and there's a lot of people in the district that are excited about it, and we'll see what happens.
0: In terms of the state of the race, in terms of fundraising, first you're a bit behind City Councilman Richie Torres, who has raised more than a million dollars, if I have it right. Something he's also received a bunch of union endorsements, as has another opponent of yours, Michael Blake, and then the front runner, Ruben Diaz, is the Bronx borough president. So Well the father
1: of-, of the Bronx
0: father of sorry the father of the Bronx or the president who sorry yeah to clarify he's the homophobic father of the Bronx borough president is that right
1: well you've done your research
0: <laughs> yeah but I still confused I still confused them and then I was like wait a second he's senior the other guy's junior got it and is a former what was it what was the senior's former position then
1: he's a senator and then he became a councilman so he's a senator councilman and now he's running for congress
0: and he's like a homophobic evangelical minister, if I remember That's correctly.
1: That's what I heard. That's what I hear on the
0: streets. Yeah. So interesting guy. <laughs> interesting guy. Um, What is the current state of the race and what's your plan to fight these not insignificant forces arrayed against you? What's the overall strategy? What's the ground game?
1: Well, we're just devoting ourselves to the ground game because at the end of the day, this is going to be a field. This is going to be determined by, by field, by door knocking, by numbers. And I think that the choice is clear. There's a bunch of corporate Democrats running for this seat, some of whom are not even from the Bronx or from Manhattan. And you have, uh, you know, the basically a Republican who's brought Ted Cruz into the Bronx in the past. In- and <laughs> oh so God. you have a lot of elements. And I think that our responsibility as a campaign is to make that case to the community and take the veil off of these people. And say, well, they're going to tout their experience, but what has their experience gotten? you? Right. Like their experience is basically to prop themselves up for the next political career position that they're aiming for. They may have a lot of experience in those political machinations, but do they have experience in being principled, being consistent on the issues, fighting against rezoning? fighting against real estate developer contributions, fighting against corporate PAC money? Do they have experience in values judgment? A lot of the people in this race supported the Independent Democratic Conference arrangement. Calling themselves progressive, they supported this arrangement. I am the only candidate in the race that was vocal against the Independent Democratic Conference. And I think that when you look at races like these, It's really important to have someone who's going to lead with conviction and who's going to come in there with sound judgment and a strong value system that is reinforced by the movement that I hope to be held accountable to. And the other people in this race just don't have that. And I have that. I have experience in fighting for the community, standing up with the community, fighting against rezonings, fighting against predatory practices that inflate the cost of rent, devoting my life to public service without having a political platform to do it, because I've been a part of this collective movement space here in the Bronx that's been organizing. And at the end of the day, change only happens when you organize for it from the ground up. Just like Bernie says, this is true. And just like we saw with the civil rights movement, this is true. Change never happens because people in power give it to you. You have to organize for it and demand it and take the power that's needed to transform your community. So that's what's at stake in this race. And we're moving forward one door at a time. We're door knocking. We're raising money in a clean way. We're leading with conviction and love and compassion. And people are resonating. People are seeing what we're doing and they're resonating with our message and they are starting to see the distinctions that just because you may look like the community that you want to serve because a lot of them are also playing identity politics i mean I, i'm against identity politics because i don't think that just because someone looks like you you have the best interest of the community at heart i think if you really want to see how someone really feels about the issues and what they really value you got to look at the way that they fundraise their money if they fundraise their money in a way that stands against the best interests of the community, that's not somebody that needs to be in office. And the community is starting to see that. I think that the community also wants to see grassroots activists that have lived through certain experiences, someone like them, to fight for them in, in Congress and at any other level of government that they trust, well, this person has been there. Because those experiences with oppression, those lived experiences, those are just things that you can't get from a book. Those are things that you just can't open up like a manifesto and be like, okay, so like I'm a socialist now because I read, you know, paragraph A, B, Z of, you know, article AEY, you know,
2: like,
1: <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not an academic mm-hmm. book club, like lived experiences are worth their weight and goal, especially as it relates to lived oppression. So those are the kinds of things that keep you grounded or keep someone like me and many other people like me in the movement space grounded in this struggle and understanding that this is why I'm here. I'm here to fight for transformative change and justice no matter what. And it's going to take the community to help me get there. And it's going to take me listening to the community and humbling myself to make sure that the activism and the change that they're yearning for on the ground is translated into electoral power, is translated into political empowerment, and that we continue to look towards the past, our revolutionary past, our resilient past here in the South Bronx, to make sure that we tap into that magic that has always defined us as a borough, as a county, and make sure that we honor that legacy and take it to the next level. So that's basically what we hope to do, what we've been doing, uh, channeling that beautiful, magical, revolutionary legacy that defines the Bronx. And something else that, like I say in every interview, is that I understand that the South Bronx has a set of economic challenges. And that's true, that's undeniable. But We're not just the poorest congressional district in the entire country. We're a resilient community. We're a beautiful community. We're a diverse community. And we have a lot of activist energy, a lot of movement leaders here locally in the South Bronx. And the South Bronx used to be looked at as a global and national policy thought leader in the community, Um, especially as it relates to community development affordable housing, and the environmental justice movement. So we have to step away from reframing or framing the Bronx as a downtrodden place. We have to look to the Bronx for inspiration that could be implemented nationally and globally. So that's basically what we've been saying in the campaign trail, and it's resonating with the community.
0: And can you close out just by quickly mentioning, tying in how listeners can both get involved in terms of volunteering and in terms of giving you money?
1: Oh, absolutely. So as a grassroots campaign, we definitely you know struggle with that because when you reject these kinds of uh, dirty sources of funding, it's difficult for you to raise the money. But definitely volunteer, especially if you live in the Bronx, if you're listening to the podcast. You can sign up at lopezforthepeople.com. If you can't volunteer, I encourage you to please donate and spread the word. If you are going to volunteer, bring five of your family members and friends, uh, because this is going to be a race where every single vote is going to matter. And sign up at LopezForThePeople.com. If you have a talent in video making, if, uh, you know, a graphic designer, an artist in the community, a drummer, like something that, you know, can bring that sense of vitality to the campaign and the movement that we're trying to build and the movement that we're trying to respect, sign up at LopezForThePeople.com. And I think I was telling you earlier in the conversation, I'm bilingual. There's a lot of people here that don't speak english in the congressional district so if you speak different languages whether it's spanish french arabic creole you know definitely we could use your your canvassing and we can use your voice so that we can connect with the diverse community that exists in this congressional district so if you fall under any of those categories Go to lopezforthepeople.com because we want to make sure that we're reaching out to our Muslim brothers and sisters, the Yemeni community, the Palestinian community that's here in the congressional district so that we can honor every section of this district and fight for every section of this district because this is what we need to do. We need to create unity and see that in our diversity lies our strength.
0: Well, Samalisa Lopez, thank you so much.
1: Muchas gracias. So Lopez for the people that come, everybody.
0: Samalise Lopez is an organizer running for Congress in the Bronx in New York's 15th district. Next up, Jabari Brisport, Marcella Matanes, and Souffrant Forest. Jabari Brisport is a public school teacher, union member, and democratic socialist. He's running for the 25th State Senate District in Brooklyn. Marcella Matanes is a former undocumented Peruvian immigrant and tenant organizer. She is a Democratic Socialist running for assembly in District 51. And Farah Souffrant Forrest is a union nurse, tenant organizer, Democratic Socialist, and the proud daughter of Haitian immigrants. She is running for state assembly in New York's 57th District. I interviewed them all in person a few weeks ago in Brooklyn. Jabari Brisport, Marcella Mattaines, and Farah Souffrant Forrest, welcome to the dig.
3: Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Marcella, your work as an organizer helped win passage of New York's Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, which included rent control. Provisions rent stabilization as well as just protections against evictions really important for tenants statewide Jabari you've been arrested I believe protesting luxury developments yep and Farah you joined the tenant movement because you had to because you discovered about three years ago I believe that your landlord planned to convert your rent stabilized apartment building into condos and as a result you became a leader not only in the fight to save your building but also in this larger movement to secure these historic tenant protections. so also just, got arrested, too. And you got arrested, too. I don't want to leave we that out. We all got arrested. Everyone got arrested. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah if, if I leave anyone... About to elect some criminals.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I leave anyone's protest cred out at any point, feel free to jump in. Well, so just to start out, what what made that campaign for this legislation in 2019 Successful, and why is electing housing justice advocates like the three of you to the state legislature an important next step in the fight for housing justice in New York
3: for me i've been um i've been doing this yeah I've been doing this a little over a decade, and I also became involved through my own housing issues and getting displaced from a rent stabilized apartment that I shared with my family for over thirty years. Seeing my neighbors being displaced. We got a new owner in 2006, and within six months, he displaced half of the 35 unit run stabilized building. Not understanding what was happening, seeing my neighbors at community organizations, city agencies, why weren't these people like connecting the dots and really understanding um, what was happening? But most importantly, understanding that as tenants, we had rights. So a lot of it is just been years of a movement that's been building as uh, New York City continues to uh, be in a housing crisis. So this was a campaign like many campaigns that we have done in the past, you know, always hoping for the best but expecting the worst. We had gotten to a point where we got used to losing in Albany. Um, But a lot of it also was lesson learned throughout the years, particularly depending and expecting what we thought were our colleagues and our supporters and our allies really going up to bat for us. And what we were realizing was that there was a lot of real estate money involved in politics. And and so a lot of fake friends. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we started getting smarter. And I think the movement decided also, and you can see as the organizations also started expanding and changing, that in order for us to get the legislation passed, we really needed to elect people that were going to make it happen. And that included getting rid of some incumbents that had been beholden to real estate because of the money that they had received. So that was a big push and a big effort in making this uh, a reality and building leadership throughout the years. I mean, just for my community alone, working with monolingual Spanish speakers who are predominantly undocumented, who don't understand the way our government works, who come from countries of oppression that aren't civically engaged i mean it took time to educate them it took time to give them the skills to be leaders it took time to get them to learn to go up to um, albany and fight for our legislation and getting them involved Mm -hmm. in elections and then just growing our movement that was a really big thing and and educating folks and like me, once we realized what was happening, once we realized that these um, elected officials were corrupt, we got angry mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we started organizing and we started mobilizing.
2: Yeah. I mean, if I can briefly add on to what Marcella is saying, like this notion of like the movement growing and expanding and building, it's what was so successful about. The housing campaigns last year is that there was coordination on a level that had never been seen before in New York. I mean, you know, tenants unions have been a thing for a while on particular buildings. Um, Emmy and Farrah's community, there's a great neighborhood neighborhood wide tenant union called the Crown Heights Tenant Union. But this housing campaign last year saw a coordination that was not just New York City, it was Buffalo was involved, Rochester was involved, it was full on statewide. And like, that's also what these movements are about is like, you know, how can we get greater and greater numbers of people to stand up and fight power or fight the power, excuse me. Yeah, I mean,
0: no rational person would put New York City and the rest of New York State into the same state, but there it is. So you have to figure out how to do this stuff statewide. But then that's what
4: (laughs) is so unique about this movement. I mean, I started out in my building, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Organizing in my building. And then I joined the Crown Heights Tenant Union. But you, you get swept up you get swept up because you're seeing that so many people care about housing. And so it allowed us to push the envelope on in ways that we've never thought before. I mean, for us to go there with nine bills demanding the elimination of major capital improvements to say that we deserve the right to have years of look back. But then now the argument is changing to the point that we're saying, listen, this should go beyond rent stabilization, Mm -hmm. rent stabilized tenants, and that all tenants Mm -hmm. deserve a right to be in their home and feel like they're secure. As a candidate, I have gotten in trouble for saying, pushing even further and saying, hey, rent should be eliminated. We should not be paying rent, you know, and the idea that that behind that is that housing should not be a commodity, that housing shouldn't be for profit. We're, regardless of any the model that you use, we can use public housing, co-ops, or even land trust, but whatever it is, it has to be different than what we're used to, which is landlords taking our money, sitting back, and then we're paying the price for these exorbitant We're paying these exorbitant prices. And so this is why it's so important to have us say that we're democratic socialists, that we are bringing an entirely different, it's not new, but different alternative for New Yorkers that are tired of how it is in New York State. The idea that real estate is controlling our legislature, knocking it out, we're not taking corporate Profit. We're not taking corporate money. We're not taking money from real estate developers. Um, but then even going further and saying things like housing is a human right. Mm-hmm. And when we get on to other topic, it's like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> these people are bringing something spicy. <laughs>
0: Socialist politics is always keeping it spicy, which is a good thing. Um, there's a lot that you all said that I want to get into more depth on. But maybe we should step back at first and just talk a little bit about your districts. What are your districts like? Who who lives there? And how have politics typically operated in those districts? What does politics as usual look like and, and, and how do you beat that politics as usual with socialist politics?
4: Um I like to give a little story. Um I had called one of my um supporters up and he said that Oh, my God, you called? Think, you know, this is exciting. Um, but you wouldn't believe what happened. I said, what happened? He said, <laughs> Walter, my, the incumbent, yes. my incumbent, Walter <clears throat> Mosley, came to his door and was knocking on the door. So then this person is very enlightened. He's like, wait, if you're knocking on my door, you must have a challenger. He said, yes. So he said, um, tell me more about your challenger. And he said, well, she's young. She's a socialist. You know? And I just said, <laughs> well, that's a points. bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> bad things, right? But
0: Tell me more. You know? Tell me more, right?
4: <laughs> well, he did look up more and <laughs> ended up supporting my campaign, but mm-hmm. um but that's what's so interesting. Like we are pushing the envelope. We're mm-hmm. put we're changing the way people basically think of politics. Um the incumbents normally just send out a mail or put up some flyers, but here mm-hmm. we have an established Democrat knocking on doors, feeling that he has to be forced to engage now.
2: Mr. Jabari again, my district, our all just dist- well, our districts heavily overlap, yeah. which is a really beautiful thing that allows us to collaborate in ways that candidates don't typically do. So, um, my district spans most of Central Brooklyn. Um, I'm not sure many of your listeners know the neighborhoods, but it's uh, Bed-Stuy, Fort Green, Clinton Hill. Um, Far and I overlap in like two or three. Neighborhoods in the district, and then uh, Marcel and I actually overlap in Sunset Park and Red Hook, which is two of the neighborhoods in the district. Um, So they're very diverse. Um, My district spans so many that it's you know massive Black African American populations in Central Brooklyn, and then deep Latin expom. Um, populations on the waterfront in Red Hook and Sunset Park. And it's kind of like Farah said, the machine politics have been there for so long and just sent out flyers and all do paper endorsements of each other. But I think what they've been seeing in the past couple of years is that, you know, machines, they become obsolete. And these institutions are very brittle and very susceptible to, um, you know, populist socialist demands where we um, are actually knocking indoors doors and meeting people and activating entire bases of community members who have not participated in politics.
3: Yeah, and my district is predominantly Sunset Park and Red Hook, and I'm trying to unseat a 24-year incumbent, and it's been startling to me to see how little effort he has to put forward Mm -hmm. to get reelected. Literally, um, the weekend before um, the elections is when you see him and his people out um we're talking also about a district that has one of the lowest voter turnout so people are become disengaged they feel like they don't um they aren't represented they're um concerned about the corruption in politics and so having real conversations with folks and understanding that we do have the power and we do have a voice, and we have the right to be represented. It's really engaging people um in a grassroots movement is what we're doing, which is very similar to the to the housing movement that we've done. Mm-hmm. and so seeing the same things um from the incumbent sending out um people to set uh, to have fielders to get a better understanding of what the issues are in the community. um I'm hearing that his office is actually calling. I think in the early fall. Uh, the incumbent was actually had a palm card with the date of the the primary, which was very surprising. And then just talking to folks trying to understand what some of the issues are. Um, his office is currently now calling constituents, checking in on them, asking them what issues and problems they have, reminding them that their office is there to help.
0: Suddenly, he's very attentive. Yeah, even more so. Um,
3: Funny. <laughs> I was. I'm also on the community board, so at the last community board meeting. There was a new staffer that he hired that was introducing this one person that was going to be dedicated completely to tenant issues and that his office was there to assist. And I was like, my, 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 we have his Mm -hmm. attention now. (laughs) So, yeah, he's definitely feeling the heat. I've got a little over a decade of work that I've done in the community, the community that I grew up in. Creating uh, leaders in the community, having communications with organizations and um, leaders of the community, and so they're they're definitely concerned. They didn't have anyone to answer to before, and that's mm-hmm. what we're changing.
0: Mm-hmm. It it seems like one one key thing in AOC's victory was con- building an alliance of working class people, of color, and young college educated people, maybe disproportionately white, but not entirely. White, who are also getting crushed by high rents and low pay. How do you build that alliance between different sorts of New Yorkers into uh, a left majority?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I know all three of our campaigns were knocking heavily on doors in public housing all through the winter. We've been knocking, knocking, knocking since November. And now it's at the point where, you know, people in um, public housing, it's called NYCHA in um, New York, the New York uh, City Housing Authority. Um, But people in NYCHA are, you know, talking about our campaigns that haven't haven't even been reached out to our campaigns. They just heard it from the person down their hallway. Um these are low income people of color that live in public housing that are now interested in working class candidates because someone came to their door and these politicians don't come to their door because i guess they don't value the opinions of you know these working class people of color in their in their communities and that's been a great alliance with you know the DSA and i'm you know i'm excited to see what comes out of that beyond these campaigns you know how these people get brought into our movement because it is it is about growing the movement as much as possible i want i want to see a million socialists in new york <laughs>
0: I mean, one one, one way to look at it is like the ordinary college educated transplants in New York might be seen as on some level having like a conflict of interest with long term working class residents. But these people are following where the jobs are in a city like New York and confronting actually similar. Is there a way that this that what's framed as a conflict of interest is actually obscuring what's a, a commonality of interest?
4: When I first joined the Housing Justice for All and there was a group from Rochester that came down and I was like, oh my God, Rochester's in the house because I remember as a student at uh, SUNY Geneseo in up school upstate New York, people don't think that place has tenant issues. People don't think that places like Rochester has tenant issues, but uh, renting a room that's uh, one bedroom with no windows. That's not right. But that's some of the things, that's some of the conditions that we as students had to put up with. Or the fact that you could be in Rochester in the middle of December and your landlord tells you you got to be out in 10 days. There's no housing court. There's no special privileges for you. You just have to be out. So that conversation, you know, because I've been there, I was able to connect with that. But, you know, sometimes in New York City, we get so closed off in our bubbles that we don't think that the person from Syracuse has some of the share experience or maybe is running from the same experiences or worse experiences there and coming to New York to try to get something better
3: housing is a basic foundation of life. You know, you can't build unless your foundation is solid. And housing intersects with everything else, with education, with jobs, with health. And so it really is, it's been years of neglect and getting us to the housing crisis that we have. And that's the common thing that we share. I mean, going up to Albany and talking to the elected officials, we've spoken to their staff, their interns that are having housing insecurities, Um, Mm -hmm. This is not very, this is a common thing. Unfortunately, we're not talking about it. And that was really instrumental in building the movement is the fact that we could get New York City politicians to support the rent issues and the rent problems. But it was the upstate legislators that were kind of like saying no, like housing and rent, rent stabilization, housing issues. That's a city issue. And it's not. We were able to expand the conversation because we started reaching across across the state and talking to people and and having those conversations where I don't think that, you know, a year or two years ago, we would have been able to have a conversation about universal rent control. Mm-hmm. Like that was so um, that was so not something that, you know, the real estate industry was going to allow to these politicians, but we've broken past that. And so now we're on to the next thing. What else? What else do we know? What else do we need to do? Because we knew and we go through this. Every year the rent laws are up is having a debate within the campaign about what are the key legislations that we're going to push forward. And we knew even if we were successful in getting all nine bills passed in 2019, there was still a laundry list of things that we needed to do Mm -hmm. to really make changes. And what people don't understand is that this capitalist society is making money off of poor people. Mm -hmm. They are making money off of keeping people in the shelter system. They are making money off of the large number of homelessness. And this is a conversation that we need to have. We need to educate people so that they understand.
2: And they're making money off of poor working class people of color, and you have three working class, you know, people of color running for office, you know, yes. from our communities, and we represent our communities. You know, we have, we need, and that's what we need more in office: is public school teachers like myself, it's nurses like Farah, it's tenant organizers like Marcella, and just talking about the building movement that's been said, like that's something that we're really showing in our, the way we run our campaigns. Like, you know, you can talk about the, the level of coordination on the housing um, justice for all campaign. We have a level of coordination between our campaigns that has not been done. Anywhere that I know of. I mean, we are doing joint canvases with literature with our faces um, on them and the places where we overlap. We um, traveled up to Albany together to do joint demonstrations. We released joint platforms on decarceration and we released a joint video on um, good cause eviction together. Like no, no other campaigns are doing this where they're coordinating at this level. But like that's what it's about. Like And that's what democratic socialism is about to me, too. It's we're consistently collaborating together to build this vision that we want for the future.
3: And I think it's also we've been conditioned to think that we're asking for too much mm-hmm. that no, now wait. is the not now mm-hmm. is not the time um, I can't do this right now we have other priorities mm-hmm. No, this is a big issue and mm-hmm. we need to start solving it now
4: We need to do it now because we can't wait any more we can't wait any longer. Our communities are rent burdened they're paying more than a half of their rent their salary towards rent, and then you're thinking about everything that's left left beyond that, the utilities, um, which people don't understand that in New York City, the second most common reason why you might be evicted is because of the utilities. You couldn't yeah. pay the bill, uh, the light bill or the gas bill. Um, and then you're thinking about the fact that we don't have healthcare that's accessible and affordable to everyone. So now, you know, you are paying high premiums, $400 just for yourself. God forbid you have children and a husband, Jesus, you know? So all of this is kind of the reason why we need to make sure that people understand that this campaign is not sending just three candidates it's sending three organizers, mm. socialist organizers to Albany. And at every moment, of our time there will be held accountable to the people because that's the, that's, that's that's the only way we can work.
0: I'm glad you brought up utilities because that's an issue where economic justice, housing justice, and environmental justice all intersect and all of you make environmental justice key priorities in your platforms. And I mean, the links, the links between the housing, and the environment are, are everywhere. But I mean, in New York City, we have Hurricane Sandy displacing thousands of people from their homes in Assembly District 51 and Senate District 25. Mm -hmm. That's where Red Hook is, one of the highest neighborhoods at highest risk of flooding in the city. How are these issues linked, including but not only on, on utilities? And how do you concretely connect them? In your campaigns? Because obviously when we sit here and analyze them, we can see the links. But how, when you're out there knocking doors, do you make those connections?
3: In Sunset Park, particularly down by the waterfront, it's it's a flood zone. So having conversations with people about the need for climate resiliency, having conversations with folks on the possibilities of a green a green future right including the green new deal we have sunset park has one of the largest and last working waterfronts that was purchased in 2013 and has been redeveloped unfortunately the developers are looking at making money and so The businesses that they're bringing in, the events that they're having are not really meant for the community and having conversations about that and what their presence means and that displacement. We also have a community organization called UPROSE that's been doing a lot of work on climate justice, and they have a vision of what that waterfront could be, including preserving it for future manufacturing and jobs of this green um, this green new economy. That would be huge if that's something that we can do because the green economy would actually bring living wage jobs to the community, allowing working class to move up into the middle class and investing in our community by being um, homeowners. So having those conversations, and even not too long ago, this conversation about the BQX and the, the electric trolley coming, right? So they want to do this all along the waterfront. And having conversations and having folks understand that what is going to what's going to fund this is really the development that's going to happen along the waterfront. But that development is really causing displacement in our community and having conversations about that and really rallying folks. So education, leadership opportunities, and then actually having people use and exercise their voices. We were successful in Sunset Park in getting one of the stops along the trolley to be eliminated. Now we have to work on the rest of the... We have to band with our brothers and sisters along the waterfront because this is not this is not something for us. I know Red Hook is a um, transportation desert, but it doesn't make any sense to bring in an electric trolley in a flood zone area if we have another storm... That trolley is going to be paralyzed. That's not going to help at all. So having these real conversations so that people understand, so that they can start making decisions about their future, and we can start deciding as a community what it is that we want.
0: These sorts of things like electric trolleys, which we see popping up in various cities, they sort of pose as being about solving transportation problems, but they're neither the most ecologically efficient nor cost efficient. They're about kind of remaking... The neighborhood aesthetically
3: mm-hmm. right exactly so having conversations of the fact that the trolley having a stop in sunset park is not a coincidence with the, the redevelopment that's happening it's to allow people from the outside to commute in and in, into our communities and what's happening is people are coming into our communities and seeing that it's still affordable compared to the rest of new york city S- seeing the cultural diversity which is now becoming very unique as our neighborhoods and New York City becomes to gentrify. And so what they want is they want some of that.
0: That that becomes commodified as a selling point. Exactly.
3: And you're pushing out Mm -hmm. long-term tenants that have been here, that have helped create these communities who are not going to be able to afford to be here through the changes.
4: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left wing titles. Perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers by Richard Lockman. The extent and irreversibility of U.S. decline is becoming ever more obvious as America loses war after war and as one industry after another loses its technological edge. In First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Lachman explains why the United States will find it impossible to retain global dominance. He contrasts America's relatively brief period of hegemony with the Netherlands, similarly short premacy and Britain's far longer era of leadership. Decline in those cases was not inevitable and did not respond to global capitalist cycles. It was the product of the success elites had in grabbing control of resources and governmental powers. In this process, not only are ordinary people harmed, but capitalists become increasingly unable to coordinate their interests as a class. They fail to adopt policies and make the investments necessary to counter economic and geopolitical competitors elsewhere in the world. Following this model, Lockman traces the transformation of US politics from an era of elite consensus to its present-day condition of paralysis and plunder, explaining the paradox of an American military with an unprecedented technological edge unable to subdue even the weakest enemies, and the consequences of finance's cannibalization of the economy. First-class passengers on a sinking ship Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers by Richard Lachman, out now from Verso Books. In terms of like making these these connections, it seems like something that people don't automatically care about. I mean, maybe some people automatically care about housing, Mm -hmm. economics, Mm -hmm. the environment. But do you have to do some work to make the connections for people?
4: I one of the things uh, that happened last year was the there was blackouts mm-hmm. in Canarsie. There was blackouts in New York, in Brooklyn, right? Blackouts in Canarsie, parts of Lower Southern Brooklyn, and which is a predominantly uh, Black people of color. The reason behind the blackout it was not random. It was actually selected because they wanted to preserve the power for Wall Streets and other affluent parts of brooklyn our local power company con edison did this very deliberately i mean i'm a haitian woman and i'm understand blackouts (laughs) from a haitian Mm -hmm. standpoint so being in brooklyn and seeing power cut off and this is basically this was chosen due to the zip code that you were living in that's disgusting That's unacceptable. And it's crazy to think that people have gotten so used to be pushed to the side that they didn't even question it. Mm -hmm. They didn't, people in Canarsie didn't even understand that while they had no power, people were still using ACs Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn Heights. Like, that's not right. And so when we say that, when we say, when we talk about public power and saying that we should democratize this and we should control it, take it out of the hand of st- uh, stockholders and investors and put it back in the hand of people, it kind of thinks it, it, it shifts something in their brain like, wait, maybe maybe this is something, even if it wasn't something that I cared about, right? We know that Hurricane Sandy, right? Mm-hmm. We understand flood zones, but understanding that, our electricity and the grid should be under our control, they're like, "Oh wow,
0: maybe they hadn't considered that no, to no be they possible hadn't. before, no. but yeah. once you consider something to be possible, this new, is this is what I mean by open. like
3: we're we've been conditioned to like not think outside the box and being pushed back on the ideas that we have um but it also talks about the resiliency of us as New Yorkers and mm-hmm. working class. Right. That if something happens, we know how to keep moving forward. And last year it was a blackout. A couple of years ago, it was, you know, the snow that was in shoveled in communities of color. Mm-hmm. I went to New Jersey because I knew there was a huge st- snowstorm. Mm-hmm. I was going to play with my nephews. And I came back two days later, dropped off at 34th Street. Not much snow there. Hopped on the train, came back to Brooklyn and a block away where I usually take the bus up the hill no Had not been, you can tell it hadn't been <laughs> plowed for days. Marcella,
4: there was a B-48 stuck on.
0: Which is a bus for those listening from outside of New York. <laughs> I'm sorry.
4: There was a bus stuck on the road for a straight week. Can you imagine?
0: Just sitting there?
4: Just sitting there. In the middle of Washington (laughs) Avenue, just sitting there. And no, there were no ambulances. No one could go past. Police officers couldn't move. It It was disgusting. But yet, as Marcella said, other places were paved. I mean, cleaned up. Why? And then they expect us to stay still and
3: stay quiet about this. And that's the other thing, you know, people, when, when they learn about these things are getting angry and rightfully so mm-hmm. we're using that anger and putting it into a movement. And what we're getting, we're getting pushback because this is some of what happened in the rezoning in Sunset Park. We're being told we're just being loud. We're being told we don't want to have a conversation. We're being told that we're just here to create noise. No, we are trying to have a conversation. We are trying to tell you what's going on. You're ignoring us. Ooh, for mm-hmm. years. So we're going to get. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to start getting louder and louder until you understand that we are the ones that have the power. And when that doesn't happen, that's what we're doing. That's what this movement is about. This movement is about building collective power and taking that power back and giving it to the to the working class and the community.
4: And we're not going to wait our turn. We're not going to stand back and wait for somebody to come and save us. I think we have so much capacity in the community. I mean, as a union nurse, I never thought that. Who would have thought that I would have been running for office? But I have capacity. Marcella has capacity. Jabari has capacity. Like, we have the ability and we are working with a community that is not a victim. It's not shell-shocked. It is woke and it's ready to mobilize. And we are mobilizing towards this vision for our communities, a vision of justice, a vision of dignity for our community. Um, the idea that we can self-determine our path through life. We don't have to accept these set courses. You know, this idea that, ra- that poverty Addles with your brain somehow. And you now you can't think. You can't move. No. This, in fact, gives you skills to survive and push forward.
0: Bill de Blasio won his campaign with this sort of indictment of Bloomberg's This Tale of Two Cities mm-hmm. campaign. And that clearly shows there was an appetite for change. But what do you make of, of how he's governed Since taking office and and what and what that shows about what true progressive or true left governance looks like and the pitfalls of not not doing that.
3: De Blasio was a huge disappointment, but I think it speaks also to the deep hold that um, the real estate has on New York City and it's Mm -hmm. not going to it's not going to change overnight. And it's not going to change by just changing one politician. We have to get rid of a bunch of them and bring in a bunch of new um, people that understand what it is to have a working class struggle, what it is to have these lived experiences give, gives us the knowledge to know not just what the issues are, but how to resolve them. And it's not until we start making those changes on the larger level That we're going to start seeing changes. And I think that even from the point from when de Blasio started to now, the fact that we've got numerous politicians talking about not taking real estate money, not taking corporate money, is really changing the conversation and really changing the way we think about politics and what we expect from our politicians
2: yeah I mean, I would say what's disappointing too in like de blasio is that it still is a tale of two cities um approaching eight years later it's a it's a you know we see um some neighborhoods undergoing rapid gentrification and some that are sitting high and pretty with all the money that has been invested in those communities for uh, decades and like Marcella's talking about this you know the extreme power of real estate in new york i mean that's where you get a, a, a really clear divide between, you know, quote-unquote progressive politicians and those that are democratic socialists. Like, you know, our campaigns are not afraid to name the enemy, and, you know, we're not going out there and just saying that it's gentrification in the abstract. We're pointing our fingers at it's these companies. It's these wealthy billionaire landlords and these wealthy billionaire developers that need to be um, halted and stopped and blocked from further damaging our communities. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of up to, up to us to be able to say, like, we are going to take a step back. We're pushing for the good cause eviction, for universal rent control, for, um, you know, ending the tax abatements for these for-profit developers, and really, really thinking of this as like a class struggle between um, our communities and the billionaire developers that are trying to buy them.
0: It's almost like the wave of, the new wave of left socialist politics in in New York that you are at the forefront in some way comes out of the contradiction between the promise of Mm -hmm. de Blasio's campaign Mm -hmm which inspired me at the time. I, I don't live here, but I was hopeful watching. Mm-hmm. And the reality mm-hmm. of continued real estate dominance of New York City.
4: Well, right now, before there was right, and then there was a left, right? And we would consider de Blasio to be left. But now, de Blasio is pretty centrist. Mm-hmm. And so we're pushing the spectrum even more. And that's important because our people, right, our, when we say our people, the working class, no, that is, is so diverse, right? But the working class, this 99%, is tired. We're tired of being pushed aside in the name of profits. It has to change. You cannot be in bed with developers and think that you're going to push any progressive ideals. If you look at your calendar and you have time to speak to lobbyists about this uh, real estate and, or tax abatement, but then you want to say that you're going to talk to me about my rent's too high. that No, pick a side,
0: mm-hmm.
4: pick a side. And it's amazing how when we have these conversations and we're very militant even mm-hmm. about our, retic- our our direction and our goals. How, flound- the, the the other politicians? They flounder. They yeah. they 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 don't know that everything that they stood on is shaken, yeah. and it's scary. It's very scary, and I understand that. And I, I I but understand that we will walk with you. We will hold your hand while we walk towards this revolution. Yes, because mm-hmm. it's gonna happen. We're go- it's gonna happen. It's 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 about time. No, pick a side. Now people like De Blasio are on check. And yep. it's it's sad like how he look now. But you have to you're gonna be put on check. You have to pick a side. And now people are talking about endorsing Bernie mm-hmm. yes. and all this and that. Okay. Now endorse with your actions. Right. Because that's where it really happens. We need universal health care. We need universal rent control. These are there's no grey areas mm-hmm. about that. In
0: terms of De Blasio's housing policies—the current model in New York—has been to incentivize luxury mm-hmm. or higher-end developers to include low-income units in their their mm. projects. How has that played out under De Blasio, and how does that compare to the Bloomberg model? And what so,
2: what has it looked like in practice? I mean, it's it's played out exactly as anyone could have seen it would have played out. I mean, you know. Uh, The program in New York is called MIH. It's called Mandatory Inclusionary Housing. And what it dictated was that 30% of these upzoned units would have to be affordable. And... I'm a math teacher, so it's obvious to me. Maybe it's not obvious to everyone else, but if I'm enumerate, but okay. so I'll, I'll take I'll defer um, to you. <laughs> but if you know, if 30 percent of units are affordable, that means 70 percent are not. And I mean, I think anybody <laughs> could have gone in saying, "Oh, we're allowing rapid construction around the city of units that are 70 percent not affordable," and it has played out exactly as you think it would, with um, not doing anything to slow the pace of gentrification in our communities.
0: And how's affordable even defined?
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yes, so we're definitely seeing uh, communities pushing back. And the old um, rhetoric was like, we're going to give you affordable housing. They're like, no, we know that's not for us. We don't want new people here. We're fighting to keep the homes that we have. And people are starting to push back on these constructions.
4: Because we're not going to be fighting for scraps. This is our neighborhood. I think sometimes we think that New York City is suddenly... With universal rent control, it's suddenly going to get like not hot. <laughs> this is New York City, the Big Apple. Everybody okay? wants to be here. Everyone, mm-hmm. everybody wants a piece. Yeah. So, how about the working class gets a piece though? I'm I I think these tax abatements these. Programs are just designed to then further push it in your face that you're not the one that is being, you're not the priority. Yeah. And our communities don't want scraps. Mm-hmm. We don't want the leftovers. Um, honestly, if we're not getting that 70%, you could keep your pie and it will just move <laughs> on to somebody else yeah. that's willing to work with us. There's no negotiations with that
0: unions organize people as as workers civil rights movements has or have organized people as as black people or latino people or queer people the women's movement as as women disability rights movement people with with disabilities in, in new york the left increasingly seems to be organizing people around their status and identity as tenants and out of control rent as we've been discussing is no doubt a shared problem across amongst huge numbers of people in New York but a, a shared problem does not automatically lead to a shared identity and then a common struggle around mm-hmm. that shared mm-hmm. identity how have organizers in New York over the years taken these conditions and helped people understand them as as common conditions rather than individual isolated problems and predicaments and and turned that into a movement of people fighting together to change those okay. conditions.
3: Education is a big piece. Um, for someone who didn't understand the rights that I had as a tenant to then be displaced from a a home that I shared with my family for over 30 years, I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt all these things. And one of the things we don't talk about is the trauma that's instilled when, when that happens. Um, there's a community organization... Uh, called Neighbors Helping Neighbors, who was trying to organize in our building, and it was very difficult. And I also was very skeptical of what they were trying to do and um, how they could actually help. And part of it was because I didn't know um, my rights as a tenant and what existed. It wasn't until I started participating in their monthly tenant groups that it really acted as a sort of support system for what I was going through. And made me realize that I wasn't just going through this, but I had a lot of neighbors in the community that were going through the same issues. And together we learned mm-hmm. why this was happening and that this wasn't isolated uh, situation that happened to us as individuals. And it was because but of your failures. Was, right. Mm-hmm. It, this was part of a larger issue that was happening in the community. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us to not just like learn together, but really be mad at the way the system Um, was being played out and wanting to turn that anger into action and and realizing that there were other people that were willing to do something about it. And it started off with some neighbors in Sunset Park, but then realizing that there was this whole tenant movement of people across the city and being able to participate in those those meetings and those campaigns was really eye opening to the possibilities of what we could do when we joined together mm-hmm. and then just growing growing on that.
4: I'm a union nurse and I'm a, ma- a member of New York Nurses uh New York State Nurses Association and we have been pushing for a long time um safe staffing, right? The idea that you have a nurse that is has a set number of patients that are assigned to her or him, uh, or they, mm-hmm. <laughs> but for such a long time, that was su- that was focused on the idea of protecting the nurse, right? But when we couple it with the idea of universal healthcare, the conversation now shifts. Okay, when I say safe staffing, I am actually saying patient safety, right? One of the issues that we have is medical error, medication errors, right? Whether it be, you know, the medication comes from the doctor, gets cleared through the pharmacy, and then it gets to the nurse. The nurse is the one that's administering that medication. Nurses statistically catch 80% of the error on a good day, right? But when you're on the unit and you are missing nurses on that unit, right? So instead of three nurses for, let's say, 27 patients, now you're down to two or even one, right? How is that one nurse going to guarantee that all her patients or his patients or their patients are safe? It's impossible. Now then, when we explain this to patients, clients our neighbors people who all know that one day they can be a patient too even the nurse can be a patient too then it shifts weight so what are we fighting for exactly if even if we get universal health care if it isn't coupled with nursing ratios safe staffing then it won't work and then we start thinking about safe staffing on all on 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 many other levels. Okay, is it just a nurse? Do we have enough doctors? Do we have enough um, patient care technicians? Right um, on the behavioral health floor. If you you can have one or two, you can have two nurses, but if you don't have enough behavioral techs, nurses get hurt, patients get hurt. You understand? So. It, this is one way I've seen that when we take this one single issue and we couple it with this idea of universal care, then it just shifts the whole paradigm. And everyone can get on board with that.
0: Right. In all these cases, it's about figuring out and identifying how all these bad things are connected to one another. And then in turn, figuring out and pointing out how people's interests in getting rid of these
2: bad things are all connected to yeah. one another <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah on the other yeah i mean like uh it's funny i mean people can align on the issues even if they don't even, you know, recognize themselves as part of the same group. So I'll just like real quick, I mean, I spoke with this elderly Caribbean woman in Crown Heights who is struggling with her rent, you know, and she doesn't always have money for groceries so she told me she's thankful for the food pantry, which broke my heart because no one should have to be thankful for a food pantry yeah. because the rent is too high. And on the just the other side of the spectrum, I spoke with a, just a young yuppie white dude from Clinton Hill who's making over 80000 a year and also said that he is struggling with his rent and mm-hmm. feels that he is like burdened as well. And, you know, they will never, I think that they will never see themselves and each other because, you know, they're just completely different demographics, but they can both agree the rent is too damn high. And, you know, we are getting attacked on both sides and from all sides, from developers and real estate interests. Stepping back to talk a little bit more about about the bill passed last year, a
0: a key step in passing it was ousting something called the Independent Democratic Conference, which people in New York are very familiar with and Mm -hmm. people not in New York might not be so familiar with. But it they were these senators uh who were ejected in the 2018 primaries and they were a coalition of so-called democratic senators who caucused with republicans provided republicans with
3: the votes mm-hmm. and
0: the majority delivering the chamber to them how did new york organizers manage to get rid of the idc and what was the relationship between that electoral victory in 2018 in the passage of the 2019 housing bill that followed. And then finally, what does that all say about what needs to happen in the 2020 election in terms of replacing establishment Democrats with movement leftists in your races and also really everywhere possible in this country?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really incredible to see um, wide citywide coordination Against the IDC, um, that's what, that was the acronym for them, the Independent Democratic Conference. We called them the IDC. It's like now a nasty three letters in New York <laughs> if, if you say it. It's a curse word. Yeah, it's a curse word. It's like, don't say the IDC, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was like a no IDC slate of about, you know, eight palm politicians running, challenging them in their incumbency. There was coordination between them. And it was a group effort to say, you know, we're going to oust these fake Democrats and input some um, Democrats that are true to the, the visions of the party. And, you know, not only were, was the no IDC movement successful, But we also flipped several seats and ended up with a majority that allowed us the gains in the state Senate to push forward this bold housing agenda and, you know, a ton of other um, electoral reforms as well. Um, And a great climate bill, too, which was all possible because we actually, you know, got rid of these these fake Democrats. And I think what bodes well now, too, is, you know, we are building on the success of a slate wide, um, a, a slate wide uh, concept with like the slate we're running now as socialists. You know, we're running on like a positive vision of what could New York could be um like and it's something that's, you know, enriching and enlivening and getting everyone excited mm-hmm. in our communities. And, you know, we've seen it when we work together, you know, and that's when, you know, as socialists, you know, we got to work together. It's like we're social, you know, so <laughs> the whole idea. Uh, yeah, it's like we got to work together. So, um, you know, it, we're seeing that it's been very successful and, you know, getting just a ton of enthusiasm. I mean, you know, Farrah and I, you know, our campaigns, gonna gonna knocked over 20,000 doors just you know by combining our efforts and, you know, talking to a ton of voters in the in the in the neighborhood. So it's, you know, it's definitely about building on the movement and, and bringing people together. Well, I'm not trying to compliment any of the rest of, of your opponents, but. Jabari, if
0: I understand it correctly, your opponent is perhaps the fakest of all Democrats in the race,
2: a quasi-IDC remnant. Not quite that bad, but but Uh, pretty conservative. She is, yeah, um... You know, it's, it's very unfortunate. She, she, there were literally protests outside her um, apartment mm-hmm. last year during the um, tenants' rights because she refused to sign on to any of the bills until the last moment where she got strong armed to actually voting yes on them. But, you know, we live in a district that has seen over 2,000 evictions in 2017. And you have a candidate, a centrist candidate in the race that refuses to support good cause eviction or stand up against charter school. Schools, or you know, believe you know, in taxing the wealthy um, higher with you know a flip tax or um, a piety tax in order to actually fund the housing we need. So it's uh, it's an interesting battle. It's me up. It's me up against a very centrist candidate, and it's um, it's my my you know all our races are really examples of like progressive socialists up against the machine.
4: By the way, she was a real piece of work. <laughs> Jesus. I like, like. how
2: never <laughs> saying her name. No, we're not going to say her name. She will not be named. She was a piece. I mean, I worked with a group in East New York. I, just, I
4: don't know. But anyways, um, we were working in a group in East New York, and I had a grown man cry hmm. because he was so frustrated yeah. with the complete blankness that he got from trying to appeal to her and appeal with such... All of what he was, which is I am struggling. I need help.
0: In new York and East New York is one of the most struggling neighborhoods in the city. Yeah. yeah.
3: It's ridiculous.
0: Do you two want to touch on this other question about uh, the the IDC or?
3: I think a lot of it was very new to folks and trying to uh, for us to figure out uh a strategic way of getting the message across and I think that definitely having workshops having conversations with this with individuals but also coming up with like props and like videos to really explain like visually what was happening and understanding how how disruptive this really few people were in giving the uh, majority to the to the Republicans and how that actually was stalling bills that we wanted. Right. And so it, it took a lot of effort, but it also really caught on. And I think there's this other, this other aspect of when people are educated on what's happening and when they understand that they, what they're, what they're living is not an isolated issue. You know, there's this natural anger that comes, that comes out and wanting to, to um, fix what's unjust. And I think that really speaks to the movement and how people have been able to mobilize and use, and channel that anger into actually doing something. And it's been really beautiful to see um, that collaborative effort really be successful in ousting what was it, like eight out of the nine mm-hmm. of the IDC members.
4: Oh my God, I can't wait till we make a socialist caucus. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how disruptive mm-hmm. we will be.
0: Mm-hmm. disruptive but but good, yeah. good yeah. rather Disrupt- than disruptive, disruptive to, the no, status quo. And evil.
3: to the status quo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but how much we
4: will turn things around how much we can
3: accomplish how
4: much we can accomplish yeah. how much things have been put on the back burner that we will be like hello yeah. this needs to happen now
2: yeah. I always tell New Yorkers like think about how much you hated the IDC that's how much you'll love the socialists oh <laughs> <laughs> you'll <gonna> love us <laughs>
4: <laughs> Ooh, yes
2: Farrah as
0: you mentioned earlier, I think at the top of the interview, you've said in the past, "quote fundamentally, I don't think anyone should be paying rent," and I couldn't agree more with that. But how do we get from from here to there on on this issue of housing, but but also more philosophically, more generally, with with left politics as a whole? How do these concrete reforms? fit into the fight for even bigger change?
4: Mm-hmm. The enemy must be first identified. What's, what's, what's countering our progress, which is capitalism. Capitalism will always find any way to commodify our needs, our wants, our desires. So when we talk about housing, or any other topic, until we oust the system of capitalism, we will always feel as if we are going to be marginalized, push back, our needs pushed to the side, and the greater good of making money, making profits, be put ahead. So when we lead with that, then we start to educate people about the alternative. I remember I was in the middle school and I spoke to some group of kids and I said I'm going to give you all a house, and this one says, "Well, I think I want a pink one. I I don't I don't <laughs> want this. I, I think I didn't. I said it's okay, whatever you want, pick it. And then they step back and they're like, "Well, you know, it, it's 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 it will be too expensive, hmm. middle schoolers, mind you. And I said, don't worry about it. Everyone who's making money will pay their fair share. And then they sit back and they're like, well, I guess it's not a bad idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And to see how young people are can be a, open to the idea, this is why we need to make sure we have communication between our generations that is going to count, that needs this, and then also our generation, older people that, support it and can push and promote it these are the things that we need to educate people on that this is something that socialism is something that america needs to progress to move forward to push back beyond the greenbacks and put forward a working class that is educated that is working together that is pushing forward a beautiful vision of of support of togetherness. We're all in this together. When I look at you, I see a friend, a comrade. That's what we're really working toward. And so if you want to find out more about my platform and some of the other things that I'm really passionate about, you can visit Assembly 4 forassemblycom There you will find the link to donate because we do need to push forward this socialist <laughs> vision, right, with a little bit more financial uh, support. But then most because you're not taking real estate. I'm not money. taking real estate money. It's only it's only the people. But then also there are links there to to donate your time, which is the most biggest push you can um, give towards give the which is the most biggest pushback against the establishment your very time your body time that that'll really show that hey we care neighbors talking to neighbors stepping up and starting conversations around these issues that's that's important
0: how these sh- short-term victories that are important that deliver concrete things how how they fit into the the longer term project of really fundamentally transforming society how do you how do you build one reform off of another so that things get progressively better and better opening the possibility for even more radical reforms in the future
3: yeah i think what we need to do is just change the people that are in position of power um, that are making decisions that are going to affect us our families our communities for generations um People need to, people that are in that power need to be able to care, right? And I think that's something that's fundamentally missing. Um, They don't care about their community. They're making money off of special interests and they have no connection to the community. And so there's no one holding them accountable. I think that's what's great about um our campaign and, and us as individuals who are running, because our lived experiences are what's missing. The fact that we are working class people that have gone through these struggles, that we understand that we relate is really important in in, in being in a position of power to make these types of decisions. And the more the more power we build, the more we come together, the more that we identify the power that we have as individuals first and then coming together as a group and really being able to show and demonstrate concretely what is possible is just feeding into the hope of the changes that are yet to come. Right? So that's where we're building. That's where we're moving. That's what's happening. And for me, being someone that got displaced Being someone who is now living in an unregulated unit without a lease month to month, possibly facing arbitrary rent increases, I understand what the majority of New Yorkers are going through with their housing insecurities. And it really is a testament to the power that we have as individuals to be able to come full circle And to be able to be in the state assembly voting and pushing for a good cause bill that would protect not just tenants in my community, but tenants across the state of New York. Right. Like, that's what we're doing. Um, Things are also a little bit different from me as well as a as a Latina. There are um, Latin women in political office, but they don't look like me. Being able to identify as an immigrant indigenous woman from Peru, I would be making history as the first Peruvian American in the state legislature, And we're building power from the bottom up. I often think about this um, this young lady that I met when she was about 9 or 10 who was seeing the struggles that her mom was going through the issues that they were having with their landlord and the struggles that her parents who are monolingual Spanish speakers were having. And she decided that she was ready and wanted to start speaking up. And, you know, after years of organizing in that building, the tenants band together and filed a lawsuit against the landlord for um, violation of their human rights. And here is this little, (laughs) this little girl who's now 11 Uh, standing in uh, a bunch of people and politicians and cameras and holding her own and telling her story Mm -hmm. and being able to engage with the press. um, At such a young age, understanding the importance of her to be able to do this, not just for herself, but for her family, for her neighbors in her building. You know, somebody said to her, you could be president one day. And that stuck with me because... That is 100% true. But in order for her to even seek that as a reality, for in order for her to, to, to aspire to that dream, she needs to see someone like her being able to do it. And so that's on us to be able to pave the way for someone like her to, to, to move up. So it's not just about the movement that we're building, but it's also about the leadership that we're bringing with us. And the power that we're giving back to the communities. Mm. And so this is why I'm fighting. This is why I am running for state assembly. This is not something that I dreamt about or thought that I would want to do. But this is something that I've been able to hone my skills as an organizers for over a decade, not just in my community. But being a leader statewide and bringing tenants in. That's why I'm running for changes and the tenants that I've worked with know that I am willing to fight for them and I will go up to Albany and I will fight for them. So to learn more about my campaign, it's Marcella, M-A-R-C-E-L-A for F-O-R-N-Y.com. com. Um, so come and check me out. Uh, you can read about what I'm fighting for. You can read about some of the stuff that I've done. Um, And we need people power. We need people that are willing to come out and give their time to knock on doors and talk to their neighbors. And anything that you're willing to contribute, we are running a campaign. We're not taking any real estate money. We're not taking any corporate money. And that will ensure you can be sure that I will be fighting for you and your family. And I will not be, um, you know, that, that that fight is true and it's coming from my heart.
2: No, I love the question about, you know, uh, short term versus long term. I mean, we see that even right now in the presidential election, you know, with, you know, people that just want to beat Trump and they're going to vote for Biden and people who uh, want to build something so much um, more lasting and beautiful and, um, you know, Future-oriented, who are going to vote for for Bernie Sanders? I'm, I'm happy to say all our all our campaigns are doing dual canvassing. Every single every single time you knock on a door for me or Farah or Marcel and everyone else in the slate, you're also knocking on a door for for Bernie Sanders. We so have the lid out there and everything, so we're going to make sure he's going to win New York. And you know, it's um, it is about these. Um, these small gains we're making at first. I mean, when, we, when we're when we fighting the past good cause eviction, that's one step along the way to universal rent control and a homes guarantee in New York. And, you know, when we're fighting for, um, you know, seizing public power so that we have it in the hands of, you know, the public instead of um, privately owned monopolies like Con Ed and National Grid, that's one step into pushing forward into a Green New Deal for New York where we actually decarbonize the entire state and have a nice, clean, green dream across this state. Um, you know, I'm pushing for a moratorium on charter school construction, and that's one step towards fully funding or schools. And even in our campaigns themselves, we are seeing that this you know we are part of a movement and we all kind of see ourselves as not individual candidates um, but part of a movement and so you know electing this slate is part of one step in electing a slew of more democratic socialists into office because it's not going to take one more or five more or ten more we're gonna need like hundreds more in new york state and across the country and we need so many more of us to run at all levels of government if we're going to make um something that's truly beautiful and something that you know our children can be proud of i'm i'm about to head off to work and teach my kids like my kids are (laughs) my mind i'm just thinking about them um right now but we really want to make sure we can um, do something that is lasting and collaborative and really rooted in community needs. And if you want to go <laughs> to my campaign, uh, excuse me, um, if you want to go to my campaign, you can check out uh, www.jabariforstatesenate.com. Please donate. And if you live in New York, please donate and also Canvas.
0: Well, Jabari Brisport, Marcella Matanes, and Ferris Souffron Forrest, thank you all very, very much and best of luck. Thank you for having us. Thank you
4: for having us. Thanks.
0: Jabari Brisport is a public school teacher, union member, and Democratic Socialist. He's running for the 25th State Senate District in Brooklyn. Marcella Matanes is a former undocumented Peruvian immigrant and tenant organizer. She is a Democratic Socialist running for assembly in District 51. And Farah Souffrant-Forrest is a union nurse, tenant organizer, Democratic Socialist, and the proud daughter of Haitian immigrants. She is running for state assembly in New York's 57th District. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Fia Rio-Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please, if you subscribe on iTunes or wherever, also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people to listen to the show and why you like it. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.